be seated. The title is very simple and straightforward, as you can see. It is entitled, The Second Sign, coming out of verse 54, which I just read, the last verse of chapter 4, where it says, this again is the second sign. And according to John chapter 20, in verse 30 and 31, which we started off the book with taking a look at, John told us that he was not recording all the signs that had been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. That was not his intent at all. However, he was recording signs in the scripture so that the purpose of those signs would be to bring us, to bring people to the place that they would understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life through his name. So that has been the objective of John right from the outset. And as it's been his objective, we now come to the second sign. So we keep that in mind as we're reading this miracle that takes place. And we need to remember the purpose that John had in specifically choosing to record this one. Also, as we have been going through chapter 4 with you, I want to remind you that I've been mentioning that it's a good opportunity for us to look at some principles on witnessing. We want to look at chapter 4 in the entire book, for that matter, because he presents to us helps. He presents to us tips. He presents to us examples that can help you and me in our presentation of the good news, in our presentation of the gospel. So we need to, yes, look to this sign as an opportunity to bring people to Christ, but also how did Christ work through this situation? in bringing people to Christ, just like he did with the woman at the well and the other Samaritans uh, in chapter 4. So we want to be keen and we want to be alert to what God's doing. We want to watch out for that. The second sign that we come to in summarization is, is outlined in your bulletin. We see that as he presents the second sign, he anticipated, first of all, resistance. He knew there would be resistance. And secondly, we then see that there are some seekers that are brought to him, particularly this nobleman. And then finally, we see as we wrap up the passage that indeed it accomplished exactly what John said it would accomplish. He wanted to present a sign so that people would be brought to Christ and understand. And by the time you come to the end of the chapter, guess what? Not only the nobleman's son, but as he just read, also we find out that his family, his household, came to belief in Christ. So it accomplished that which it was set forth to do. So let's jump right into it and see the first aspect, and that is the anticipation of resistance, verses 43 through 45. We find immediately the setting in verse 43. I'll read it again. And after two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. What we see here is Jesus had started out for Galilee, if you look across your Bible into chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So he was on his way into Galilee, and we see in verse 43 of chapter 4 that he's going to pick up that journey. Uh, what had happened? He had met the woman in the well. Uh, after he left that uh, area, you remember, and he was there because of the Passover. Don't forget that. He had gone down to Jerusalem, and he was there for the Passover, and that's when we had the cleansing of the temple, and we had the... Uh, things that happened down there. And then he had his presentation with Nicodemus. 
But then as he carried on his journey and now was going to Galilee, he had stopped and met this woman at the well and apparently had led not only this woman at the well to Christ, but others. If you just look at verses 41 to 42 leading into the verse that we just started, and many more believed, verse 41, because of his word. Isn't that interesting that it comes up again in the situation today where we're going to see that this nobleman believed him, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus said. And we find out in verse 42, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard him for ourselves and know, and watch again the accomplishment, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ they had come face to face with and had come to saving faith in him, and apparently she did as well. And I find it interesting that they had asked him to stay for two days, verse 40. They asked him to stay for two days. Now, the Jews, the religious people, weren't interested in Christ's thing. They weren't interested in what he was doing. All they were interested in was persecuting him. It didn't matter what was going on in life. And even his own disciples, we saw, when they came to him, they were concerned about his eating and weren't even concerned about the soul of that woman. And yet she had been ministered to by the Lord Jesus Christ, And then the Samaritans who hear this news of the gospel, they want more. And what happens is they asked him to stay, and he did indeed for two days. Really interesting. And it's a reminder of what we saw. I won't turn back there, but in John chapter 1, as we started to expound this book to you, we saw that he came unto his own, and what happened? His own just delighted in him, right? No. Came unto his own, and his own received him not. They didn't want him. But isn't it interesting that those who had desperate need and knew their soul and what their soul needed, they came and were willing to come to Christ. And that's a reminder to us, just in mentioning the Samaritan in this case, as we go on even into the nobleman's son. Listen, when you're talking about presentation of the gospel, isn't it true that sometimes we try to determine who should get saved? You say, what do you mean? Well, we look at people and we say, well, this one's a good candidate for salvation. Or we think this person, because they've been good, they're the ones that get saved. And who does the Lord go to? Those who are not significant. Those who we wouldn't think would get saved. And that's a reminder to us. Don't look at a person on the outside and say, well, that's a person Christ will save. But that person, I don't don't know that they could ever reach that one for Christ. Really, that's the people that Christ is interested in. And we need to be ready to give the gospel. We need, to see, we need to be ready to see because many times it's the people that we don't think that will respond that do respond to the gospel. Many times it's those who we don't think. They're the outcast. They don't fit our social circles. They don't fit our circumstances. They don't dress the way we dress. And so what happens, we're not even ready to go to them with the gospel. That's the very people that Christ went to. Don't ever forget this point. Your Savior, those of you that have trusted Christ, your Savior sat with tax collectors. Your Savior went to the Samaritans. Your Savior went to the outcasts of the world and presented the gospel. And if it's good enough for him, it had better be good enough for us. We better be ready to go. He was ready to witness, and it didn't matter. So now he continues on in his journey. That's where we pick it up in verse 43. And we come immediately to a reality check in verses 44 and verses 45. This is kind of strange. Jesus 
himself testified, a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's kind of strange that he would put that in. It's a proverb that he's stating here, by the way, and it might seem simple at first, but this is not a very easy text, by the way. When you first look at it, it might appear to be, but it's not. Why? Well, let me ask you a question. Who is he referring to? What place is he referring to? What do you mean, Pastor Dan? He says, after two days, it says he went to Galilee because or for the connection, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Well, there is much debate. Is he referring to Judea? What do you mean, Judea? That's where he was born. Is that what he's referring to? Prophets? He's going to Galilee because the prophets are not of, uh, received in his own country, which is Judea. Is he referring to Israel as a whole? Many common contemporary commentators believe that that's what it is, that he's referring to Jerusalem as a whole. Or is he referring to specifically Galilee? We have to determine that first. When he says a prophet is not or has no honor in his own country, and that is going to affect the way we interpret this passage, by the way, is he referring to Judea? Is he referring to Israel? Is he referring to Galilee as the place of his upbringing? Let me get right to the point. I'm not going to debate all of that stuff. I think it is obvious with a little bit of study that he's referring to Galilee. Why? First of all, how about the context? Chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea and departed into Galilee. How about verse 43? He went forth from there into Galilee. How about verse 45? So when he came to Galilee, Galilee surrounding the whole thing. Why would you put verse 44 someplace else? But just in case we want to be consistent and check it out, let's look at three other quick passages. Go with me to Matthew. It's only used three other times, this expression. Let's go to the Matthew chapter 13. Let's let the scriptures answer it for us. Matthew chapter 13. I'll be quick with it. In Matthew chapter 13, look at verse 57. And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, here's the place where it's used, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And by the way, each context I'm going to look at, you'd have to look at its own context to see why he used the expression. But what's he referring to? Well, that's easy. Go back to verse 54. And in verse 54, and coming to his own hometown. What was his hometown? Nazareth. It was Nazareth that was his hometown. That's where he grew up. Go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. In verse 4. And Jesus said to them, that's a sound, by the way, a pastor loves to hear pages of a Bible turning and people flipping through it. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. Where was that? Well, we know it was Galilee. And that's what you find out. You go back in the context again, go back to verse 1. And he went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And it was the Sabbath. You look at the whole context. Where was he? He was in Nazareth. That's Galilee. And the last use is Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4 and verse 24 and 
he used two Proverbs. The one was the physician that you're familiar with in 23, but in verse 24 he says, Truly I say unto you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. What was he referring to? Verse 16, and this ties it all in, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Just in case you didn't think Matthew and Mark were dealing with Nazareth. It's as clean, as clear as could be. So what are we saying? Go back to John chapter 4. And when he says to them that a prophet is not without honor in his own country, what's he referring to? He's referring to Galilee. He's referring to that place, Nazareth, where he grew up. Well, that raises another question. Well, look at verse 45. They received him, didn't they? And he says that he's not without honor. And yet they received him. So how does it fit into the context? We're going to see that in just a minute. This is an absolute superficial reception that he is going to address. The only reason they are going to receive him that way is because of the miracles that he's doing. They're not interested in him. They're not interested in who he is, at least at first, and the people in a whole will see that in a minute. They had seen the miracles that had happened, probably the water changed to wine, obviously, in Cana of Galilee. And they hadn't received him as the Messiah. They didn't want to receive him on those terms. They were simply looking at a wonder worker, a miracle worker, someone who could do something for them. And one of the reasons we know that, uh, let me look at it right now. Look at verse 48. He says, Jesus therefore said unto them, unless you people, and by the way, the word people there is in italics. However, it's because if you have the King James, it says ye. That's a plural. He's not just referring to the noblemen here. He's referring to all of the people of that area. And he's saying, you people basically are just looking for a miracle worker. You want something that's going to just meet a need. You're not interested in my messiahship. You're not interested in really who I am. You receive me because you're looking for signs and wonders. And then he says plural again. You simply will not believe. Believe what? There's a difference in faith, folks. There's a faith that believes that Jesus has power. There's a faith that, believe, that believes Jesus is a good man, and there's a faith that believes he's the Messiah, a faith that will believe on him. And I'll refer to that a little bit later on. But I'm trying to point out, so when they received him in verse 45, put it in its context. They received him as a miracle worker, but it doesn't mean that they were going to honor him as the Messiah as a whole. So wh why then go? Here's the next question. Well, if it is Galilee, Pastor Dan, and he is going there, and if they received him but they didn't receive him with honor as a Messiah, then why go in the first place? Simple answer, because it's the will of the Father. What does that mean? What application does that have in verses 45 and verses 44 to us? Because in verse 45 it says, what happened? It says, therefore he basically went to Galilee, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, Okay, so they were also aware of what had taken place there. That's probably the turning over the tables. They themselves also went to the feast. They knew what was going on. Why go there if they're not going to give him honor? Because the father wanted him to go there. Because on the way, he had to specifically talk to the woman at Samaria. Because on the way, this nobleman's son's going to come there uh, when he gets there to Galilee. Because Jesus is not going to shy away just because people reject him. Any application? Oh, I think so. 
We need to be ready to tell people the gospel. We need to be ready to bring forth the good news whether people are going to receive us or not. Who are the people that are unlikely to receive you? Let me tell you. Your family. For a child to go to a parent is absolutely devastating. Why? Because the parent brought you up. And it's who are you to come to me? I, I'm the one who brought you into this world. Yeah, but mom, dad, you're on your way to hell. Who are you to tell me that? Or you go to your relatives. Or you go to the people at work. You're going to get honor from them? No, most of the time they don't want to hear it. How do you know, Pastor Dan? I know from experience. By God's grace, my mother came to a profession of faith in Christ. But I can tell you there were countless hours when I was living in Derry that I would sit in her kitchen with her, go through the gospel, and she would cry and go about the bringing me up in the Catholic Church and everything else. There were situations where my family wanted my family immediate, nothing to do with me. I'm going through some of that again right now. And it, it, that would happen. And then there'd be situations on Linda's side of the family. You go back to those people. Go back to the people you work with. So what do you do? I'm not going to get any honor. They're not going to like me. I ain't going to go. You know what? You love the world more than you love Christ. If you say that. You ought to go back to them. I think it's a big example. Christ knew. He knew there was going to be opposition. Let me give you some other examples of people who are going to resist and be rejected. Didn't Paul get that? Absolutely. In the book of Acts, Paul was rejected time and time and time again. What did he do? Got right back up and went in and gave the gospel. How about Peter? He was rejected. How about Jesus? You got the example here. People loved him, right? No, they loved what he did. By the time we get to chapter 6, and I'll save the exposition for that point, but you're going to find in chapter 6 that they wouldn't have anything to do with them anymore. Why? He exposed them. You're only here because you had bread and you ate. And we're going to have some bread and eat. I hope that's not the only reason you're here this morning. <laughs> All right? But we need to realize we need to be ready to give it. It's no different from the prophets. Jeremiah. Oh, he was really received, right? He was rejected by everybody. Ezekiel. God said to Ezekiel, I'm sending you forth to a rebellious house. They're not going to listen to you. Guess what, Ezekiel? Go anyway. Because I want them to know that a prophet had been in their midst. Isaiah, same thing. Moses, who am I? I can't even speak. Go to them. But they're not listening. Moses, go back to the people. It goes on and on and on and on. My point is to try to encourage you. Don't be ready to turn away. Jesus just the first three verses anticipate a rejection, and that's why verse 44 is there. I want you to know that a prophet's not without honor, and I'm going anyway. And he went right there anyway, and he was ready to present who he was. We should not be stopped. And you're in John. Go to John 15 just for a minute. John chapter 15, just to see this verse. A reminder, I'm sure, to most of you. In John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. By the way, there's a good test. Everybody in the world speak highly of you? Honestly, think about that. Everybody I know speaks highly of me. Really? Then that means you're too close to the world. 
Absolutely. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I won't turn to Matthew chapter 10, but you can mark it in your notes, those of you that are taking notes. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, that's what he talks about with father, mother, brother, sister. And basically, they're not going to love you if you tell them the truth. And so what's he trying to do, split families? No, he's trying to encourage you. Stand for what is right, period, and realize that there's going to be persecution. That brings us to verses 46 to 54, where we actually see the second sign. And to summarize it, it's the healing of the nobleman's son. And in this ministry, we do see that seekers do come to him. In verse 46, he came, therefore, and began again to Cana of Galilee, so we know where he is, and it's emphasizing again, I think that verse 44 is referring to Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. What's the setting? A royal official. Now, we don't know who this is, plain and simple. I don't know who it is. Is this a Jew? Is it a Gentile? And you'll find everybody debating why it is. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. Did he work for the government? Was he an official of uh, Herod, or was he official of the, uh, in a different capacity with Rome? Uh, you know, I mean, where was it that his capacity was? We don't know. That's not the point. Don't get bogged down in that. He's gone to, into Canaan. He's about 20 to 25 miles away from roughly, just to put it in perspective. It's about from here to Boston. Allow me a little mileage there. About from here to Boston, away from Capernaum, where his son is. They don't have... Hondas, they don't have Toyotas. They're not able to drive there in a few minutes, okay? He's a distance away. And what happens is his son's there and he's dying. This is not the same account as the other nobleman's son found in the other accounts. Because this is a son, it's not a servant, number one. Number two, in the other case, he doesn't even ask. This is just a couple of generalities. He, he asked the Lord to stay there. In this case, he says, come with me. I want you to come down to my son. So it's a different instant. His son's sick. So it's not the same as the other passages. And I want you to notice something else here. Again, for you spiritually, by way of application. All the money in the world and all of the prestige of this position couldn't help him. You got that? When it comes down to life and death, when it comes down to sickness, all the money in the world isn't going to save you. All of your prestige of position means nothing. Then you will see you have to rely on God. And what a tragedy it was right in, this, right in our neighborhood this week, wasn't it? You probably saw it. You know, you young people sometimes think you're going to live forever. When I was a teenager, I did too. And now that I'm old, I realize it isn't going to be that way. But there's a lot of young people who use, lose their lives we had one right in this area in a car accident. Uh, tragically, had their life taken. You need to walk with God now. You need to get down to business with God now. Because when it comes time to life and death, when it comes time to sickness, let me give you something else. There's another application here. There isn't a one, there isn't a single person sitting in this room that is not going to face tragedy. What are you talking about? The longer you live eventually someone in your family is going to die. The longer you live, you are going to face either a terminal illness or a heart attack or whatever it might be. 
you will face it. It's a matter of when. No one in this room will escape it, starting with myself. No one in this world escapes it. Will you be ready? Now's the time to walk with God. Everything might be smooth now, but there is tragedy coming because of man's sin, not because of God, because of man's sin. And this nobleman now, he realizes all, he probably, the context doesn't tell us, but he probably spent everything he could. He probably tried everything he could, and he realized it didn't work. But he heard about Jesus who could save and Jesus who could heal. And so he comes to him. But I want you to see right away, first of all, he doesn't have saving faith. He had faith, but he only had faith in Christ's ability to heal. How do we know that? In verse 47, he heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee. He went to him and was requesting him to come down to heal his son. Why? For he was at the point of death. I personally believe it's right here to understand that he wanted Jesus to get there because he says it again, verse 49, Sir, come down before my, father di- my child dies. He believes the Lord can heal, but probably not beyond death because he wants him there in a hurry. Get down before he dies. Now you can do something. And that's the way they viewed the Lord. Matthew and uh, uh, Martha and Mary, remember that? Don't worry now, he's already dead. Didn't I tell you I'd raise him? They saw him in an only capacity for doing these miracles. They didn't see him as the Messiah and his power over the universe. Not at this stage. There are people who think Jesus can do a lot of things for him. And they will go to meetings where there's supposedly healings and all the things that are going on. But when it comes down to living for him, committing their life to him, they want no part of it. What they want is what comes into their life and how Jesus can benefit them. And what you see in verse 48 is the frustration of Jesus with them. You, plural, you people, you're looking for signs. And then when they get the signs, they don't come to Christ. And God wanted even this person to see beyond just the physical. And he wanted him to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Yes, he can heal his son. He doesn't even have to go. Usually people are not ready to just accept him. They want evidence. All right, you say Jesus is the Messiah. Let me see the evidence. That was your responsive reading. That's why I put it up there. Remember what he said? I'm in hell now, basically the guy says. I've got five brothers who haven't died yet. They're on earth. Send someone back from the dead so so they believe that. Surely they'll believe. Remember what Jesus' message was in Luke chapter 16? They have the word of God. If they don't believe that, they won't believe even if one comes back from the dead. You say, Pastor Dan, that's what people want today. They want to see people come back from the dead. Let me tell you something. Jesus did. The grave's empty. We serve a risen Savior. And that will only be for a time when people see things. How does faith work? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, makes it clear. Makes it very clear. It's believing things you can't see, to put it very simple. How does true faith come to one's life as we're bringing the gospel? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Give people the word of God. There are a lot of people that are looking for signs. They're looking for miracles. They want something so they can see the evidence. That's not faith. By the way, did you know that's the only way you know the way the world got here? Say, what are you talking about? The word of God tells me that Jesus, that God created the world, right? Yes. 
Hebrews tells you it's by faith that you know that the worlds came into being. You say, but I look out and I see the evidence. Talk to a scientist. They believe it came by evolution. By the way, that takes greater faith. It does. It does. God's looking for people of faith, people that will trust in him. And guess what? The royal officer does get there. But we see these people were seeking him. We, we're living in a world. Be aware of it. The contemporary church today is talking about seekers. Look at it. It's everywhere. People are seeking. What are they seeking? An easy life? What are they seeking? Worship the way they want? What are they seeking? Seeking is a good thing. What God wants is people that are seeking him. And by the way, just because there are people that say they're seekers doesn't mean that they're not genuinely seeking him. The nobleman we're going to see gets to that point. But for the most part, most people were looking to Jesus as far as just what can he do for me. And it wasn't eternal life. It was what would be in this life. So we see that. Now, in this case, it works. The preaching and the teaching right to the nobleman works. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus simply says, verses 50 to 54, the last section, we see it does accomplish its purpose. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. All he did was speak. Is that the Jesus that you understand? One that you're able to take at his word? I hope so. In this particular case, the man believed the word. He no longer needed the miracle. Remember what I said, 20 to 25 miles away. He doesn't get there till the next day. We know that from the passage. Did he sleep? Did he get tired on his way when he was walking? I don't know. The context doesn't tell us all of it. It says he started his way, but he doesn't come across his servants until he finds out what went on. But he simply believed God at his word. Listen, can Jesus save at a distance? Yes. I'm talking about salvation. He doesn't have to be here on earth. He's in heaven, but he still has the power to save. Jesus Christ can work in our life whether we see him now or he's at a distance. And all we need is the spoken word. We need to be willing to go to others. What happens in this particular case is he now has faith in his word. His faith has turned from the visual. He needed that in the beginning. He doesn't need it anymore. He's been confronted with Christ. Christ has even rebuked him looking for signs and wonders. And he simply sends, says to him, and here's the real test. Will you take me at my word? He says, your son is healed. He's alive. And he simply believes the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Indeed, faith does come by uh, the word. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to give people the word of God. His faith was, was rewarded. He believes, you notice this, jump down. You can look at the hour, you saw it. And by the way, I don't know if that was Jewish time or Roman time. You can have your own arguments. I'll make it very simple for you. Since he looks down at the hours and he finds out that it was the seventh hour, it was either one o'clock or seven o'clock, depending upon whether you want to choose Roman or Jewish. It's irrelevant. The point was it was the exact time that Jesus said. That's the point. And he knew that, verse 53. So the father knew it was the at the hour in which Jesus said, your son lives. He knew that his word was true. 
And this particular sign that we have, this miracle of the healing of the son before he died, was a sign to bring him to Christ. Did it accomplish its purpose? Verse 53, he himself believed. He came from a faith that believed there was a miracle worker, from a faith that believed that Jesus could do it, to a faith that believed simply at the spoken word of God that indeed this has to be the Messiah. And he leads his whole household to him. And there's no evidence as to what the ages of his household are. Put it very simply, here's another application for you for witnessing. Where did he go? Back to his house. Who did he witness to? Remember we talked about that with the woman? She went back to the very people she knew, the people who knew her terrible past. And she went and said, I've got to change life. Where did he go? He went back to his family. And by God's grace, according to the text, they believed, and I believe you're dealing with a saving faith. I don't know any commentary that I've read, and I've read many of them, that doesn't believe that this is saving faith in Christ. By the time you come to verse 53, they all do. That it's genuine faith. And where did he take that genuine faith? Right back to his own family. What does that mean for you and I? We need to be out witnessing. Listen, folks. You and I need to be bringing the gospel back to our family, back to our neighbors. There are too many that have been saved a long time, listen, and are no longer having the joy of witnessing. Ask yourself, when is the last time I even brought back the gospel to anybody? I just had a pastor's meeting two weeks ago. Listen carefully. We've been meeting pastors in New England. We're expanding that thing. Uh, Chris and I get that going again, and there's a number of people that are coming, and it's wonderful to see how it's expanding. Up into New Hampshire, down to the coast and so forth. Now we get some contacts in Boston that are interested in possibly coming when we start in September. But I want to tell you something. We just had a meeting this past, was, was it this week or the week before? This week. I forget time. But at any rate, when we got together. You know what the discussion was from every one of them? The churches are growing one way. Transplants. Every single pastor. People are leaving one church, going to another. It'd be interesting for you as a congregation to come and listen to the pastor's talk. You know why? We talked about it a little bit. People haven't got the zeal to go out and witness anymore. When they got saved, they were ready to write out and talk to the people about Christ and the need for Christ. But time's gone by. You know, now I'm settled in what I'm doing, and I got my friends, and, and, and we don't like things, we move. How about bringing the gospel? Jesus Christ knew he was going to face opposition, and he went. We need to be about the business of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. We need to be telling others. We need to expect resistance and realize, listen, everyone's different. In some cases, you might water. In some cases, you might be the one that plants the seed. In some cases, you might be the one that God allows to see the fruit. That was chapter 4 as well. Remember the woman? Some of us might have an opportunity where we just share the gospel for the first time with someone. Someone you might talk to, someone else has shared the gospel, you're watering that seed. And you might just be the very one that's there when the person comes to salvation. It's irrelevant. God gives the, the increase. He gives the glory. 
What we're to be about is our father's business. And with this nobleman, he went right back to his house. And the first thing he did, isn't it true? Think for a second, those of you who know Christ. Isn't that what happened to you? I did so many wrong things when I first got saved. I know I'm still doing wrong things in case you don't think I realize that. But when I first got saved, what did I do? I basically went back and took the Bible and shoved it down everybody's throat. That's not what you should do. But what I'm trying to tell you is I was excited. Weren't you? And you wanted your family to be saved. And you wanted your neighbors to be saved. And you wanted your workers, fellow workers to be saved. And you say, no, I've been saved 20 years, 30 years, 15 years. You had to pray like David did. Not that the Lord will take the Holy Spirit from him, but stir up to me the joy of thy salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. Get back into focus the gospel. Get back into focus the excitement. I'm going to tell you something, as you know, because it's in the bulletin. By God's grace, we've just had our seventh grandchild. I've got six of them that are sitting, well, one of them's in the nursery. I've got five of them that are sitting in here, and uh, six of them that are with us, with us today. There's nothing like seeing a new baby. Have you lost that joy? How excited are you about seeing people come to Christ? How excited? But, you know, Pastor Dan, it's uncomfortable. You know, I'm going to be resisted. That's what you got here. You see, the miracle was there not to just see a miracle, not to just see a healer. It served its purpose. John tells us that. I put this here so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. That's why this miracle is here. This nobleman, by God's grace, went beyond the people of Galilee. The people of Galilee weren't going to give honor to Christ. They wanted to see the miracle, but they didn't want him. And you're going to see as we go through this book, they didn't want him for the most part. But this man came to the place where it's simply at the word of God. What do you mean? What does it mean to believe the word of God? God's message is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life does not come by works. Eternal life does not come by religion. Eternal life does not come by effort. Eternal life doesn't come by relatives, by anything like that. Eternal life comes by the mercy and grace of God. It comes because God knew we were sinners and couldn't save ourselves and sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for sin. And on the cross of Calvary, he paid for sin. And he rose from the dead. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It comes right back to the same issue. Faith. Faith in what God has revealed, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. Isn't it interesting? The Samaritans came. The woman at the well came. The nobleman's son came. And all the religious Jews around him aren't coming. They don't want him. I say to you that you have neighbors that want to come, but they got to hear. You have relatives that want to come. They don't know it yet, but they've got to hear. Well, how does that happen? Realizing you'll get resistance, realizing that God will accomplish his purpose as we are faithful like the Lord Jesus Christ was, even in his frustration, even in knowing he would be rejected, because some will come. Not many, but some will come. And they'll come when God uses you. Be ready to be used by God. 
Be ready to see this miracle. Who is Jesus Christ? <clears throat> One that can heal a man's soul while he reigns in heaven right now. <clears throat> One who can use you and me to bring the gospel to others. There's a lot going on in the world today that's not pleasant. But there is some pleasant things. Christ is still in the business of saving souls. <clears throat> and he's still in the business of using the likes of you and I to do it. Get out there and witness. Get out there and be used by God <clears throat> to lead others to Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he has power over the physical. We see evidence of that. And Father, even as we were talking this morning, and this church has been praying, what evidence we see of the healing power of God in Nathan, who had the automobile accident and the motorcycle accident, how miraculously you still preserved him, and even to the doctor's amazement, physically he's surviving and coming along. We praise your name for that. But far beyond the physical, you're still in the business of saving souls. Help us, Father, to see that we have a part in that by being willing to be used by you, even when there'll be resistance. We see the Lord Jesus Christ going forth with power, discerning even the people who were just looking for miracles, but then confronting and bringing even this nobleman to the place that he could just take the Lord Jesus Christ at his word and believe, and then go back to his own household so that they also believed. Help us, Father, to have boldness with the gospel. Help us to tell others. And I pray as we walk in this world that we'd realize that the only one that can satisfy the inner soul, not only of the lost, but even of the Christian, is the Lord Jesus Christ and walking with him. Help us to be committed to the things of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.